as a writer, the work that I could see as being really important was to show Native people as they are today, but to provide the context for some of what we're dealing with, some of the challenges. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. I'm your host, Rebecca Crook Stratton, Secretary Treasurer of the Shakopee Midwakton Sioux community. Today on the podcast, we have Diane Wilson, a writer, speaker, and educator who is a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. Her latest novel, The Seed Keeper, was released by Milkweed Editions last spring. We had a great conversation about telling Native stories, seed keeping, and food sovereignty. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Diane. Um, Welcome to the podcast. We're so excited you could join us today. Uh, I'm here with Diane Wilson, author, among many other things, and excited about our conversation today. Uh, So you write both fiction and nonfiction um, Mm -hmm. about Dakota people, Dakota issues, Dakota stories. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got into writing? Well, um, thank you, Rebecca. It's really wonderful to be here, and I, I'm really grateful for the invitation to have the conversation today. So my my background um, is, I was thinking about this this morning, I really come to writing as a reader. So one of my earliest memories was just trying to puzzle out words, trying to trying to access the stories that I knew were locked away behind books and and in the beginning really behind the <clears throat> the comic pages in the newspaper was my my earliest inspiration. But um as I as I grew older then seeing the gaps in the books that were out there and understanding as an adult the what it means to not have books as a child that represent your story, your family story, a history that, you know, unless you are um, motivated to dig it out later in life, it was not available to me as a child. So writing for me was a way of exploring questions that I had about cultural identity and about history and about assimilation and um and and really about how do we how do we undo some of the harms that have been done over uh, many generations and then wanting to bring those stories back to community um so that both children and adults have stories available to them i think that's great and so important you touched on identity and and finding who you are. Uh, We just did a a resource scan for educational resources in Minnesota and um, issued a report. But in so many cases, students, and especially our Native students, don't Mm -hmm. see themselves represented in really any of the materials Mm -hmm. throughout their K-12 through education. So Mm -hmm. um, I, I agree that is really important. Um, Your first book was a memoir about your family and heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what what was the big inspiration behind that? And how did you find all the information? (laughs) So the the inspiration for me was growing up um, in Golden Valley, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. 
And knowing that my mother was Lakota um, and enrolled on the Rosebud Reservation, she spent six years at the Holy Rosary Mission School on the Pine Ridge Reservation, and her older sisters attended the St. Francis Mission School on Rosebud. And then here I was growing up in Golden Valley, and and even as a child thinking, how did we go so far in one generation? And trying to understand what my mother's life was like, and she was not comfortable talking about it. And I think partly her generation and her her parents' generation had learned the the um, that they had they had grown up um, with silence as one of their I think protective ways of surviving, so that it wasn't safe to talk about being native in South Dakota. Um, In some cases, it was too painful to talk about the experiences that they had been through. And so for her, she wasn't, she just wasn't comfortable telling those stories. And so um, that was a big motivation to me was, was to understand what was behind her silence. And she had, she had told me a story when, uh, when I was growing up about going home to Rapid City from the boarding school for a surprise visit and and learning that her family had moved and she didn't know where they were and and she went back to boarding school for 2 years and and she wasn't bitter which uh, kind of amazed me but she also didn't have any explanation for um what had happened uh or why boarding schools existed or why her family was was um was there and so those were questions. So for me, that writing process became a way to really explore my family's history, first of all. And then, um, and then as I went deeper into it, seeing how it wasn't just my family's experience that I thought we had just made choices that ended up with us turning away from community. And it was through the research that I began to understand this broad, much broader context of assimilation and the way that had worked across um, across the country in Native communities. So for me, the research just started, you just pick a thread, you know, when you're doing it, because it's overwhelming if you try to think about all that you don't know. So for me, the the biggest question when I started was boarding schools. Why? What? Um, why was my family there? And I started with history, you know, just learning all about boarding schools and why they were established. I went back to South Dakota and visited the places where my mother and my aunts grew up. We ended up having a family reunion out there and all going out together. So it, and then it just went from there. It's like I kept pulling on that thread of, well, then boarding schools and land allotment and um, and then eventually brought me back to the 1862 Dakota War and the removal of Dakota people and the impact that that has had on uh, generations since then. That's, yeah, the, the boarding school piece is really hard. And mm-hmm. I think people don't realize how many of our families are directly affected by mm-hmm. the experiences our parents and grandparents had. 
um, both my grandparents, uh, my dad's side went to boarding schools and same thing. They didn't want to talk about it. Right. Um, and there was a lot of trauma there. And I think in, in some ways they were trying to save their children from um, having to go through similar experiences by not sharing their stories or not sharing culture and, right. and language and, and tradition with them to try to get to, you know, an assimilated sort of stance so they right. could be successful in the Western world. And I think one of the things I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about is assimilation. It's a term that yes. we know very well here yes. in Indian country for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think a, a lot of mainstream Americans don't understand assimilation or the process. Can you talk a little bit about some of the research and, and mm-hmm. what that means for Indian communities? Well, so assimilation really became the, the subtext of the memoir. So that it, it, just as you were saying, the, when, when um, earlier generations tried to protect their children by giving up language and traditions and ceremonies, and uh, adapting to Western ways in, in, I think, an effort primarily to keep their children safe. Because it had been, I mean, there were so many horrific events in history, too painful sometimes to talk about. But what I was seeing in, in writing that story is that, that whether you're, you're sharing that history or not, that trauma is rolling forward through generations. And what happens is that later generations are inheriting some of the um, the impact and imprint of that trauma, but they don't have the context for it. So there's no way to address it really or resolve it. So I found that if you go back and understand, first of all, the history, so let's say boarding schools, so you understand why they were set up, what that experience was like for generations. What happened to children when they came home? What happened to their children because they weren't being raised in a traditional household? They weren't learning how to parent. And then by sharing your own story, it helps, um, it helps address some of the shame and the trauma and the grief that so many families carry without really even um, understanding that uh, if you don't have your family history. So the assimilation piece to me, um, was told through the memoir. That's why I structured it the way I did so that the, it was generations and it was two stories moving from back in time forward. And then my story here moving back to show that, um, the way that that assimilation, the impacts of all those programs rolls forward through generations. Yeah, definitely. It, it still has a very significant impact on yes. our communities today. Um, and, and that leads to one of my next questions is about the invisibility of Native people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we really don't exist, especially as modern people in mainstream media, pop culture, um, and many Americans if they even know we still exist, mm-hmm. um, know very little about us as modern people and their images are more of the stereotypical, you know, Western films mm-hmm. and headdresses and stuff like that. So why is it important to focus on modern uh, Dakota, Lakota people um, in your writing? And, and what do you think that does for um, kind of lifting that veil of invisibility? 
you know, the um, right before the pandemic settled in, I went to a conference um, that, and I went specifically to hear Crystal Echohawk talk about this very large study she did on Native communities across the country. And she said um, a phrase that really caught my my attention, and I, hopefully I get this right. It was, um, change the story, change the future. And it was all about addressing that invisibility of Native people in um, government, in literature, in all these aspects of modern day life. And, and to, so to me, the, as a writer, the work that I could see as being really important was to show Native people as they are today, but to provide the context for some of what we're dealing with, some of the challenges. So I think of the way that um, Native youth have really struggled in terms of um, uh, lower graduation rates and depression and, and really high rates of suicide. And it's, I think there's a tendency sometimes for the media to just portray the dysfunction in Native communities. But unless you understand that broader context of trauma that has been trans transmitted across generations, then you don't understand why this was created. So I want to show in my writing and in my work that um, there is such a vibrant, dynamic, thriving Native community that continues to maintain and rebuild. And that, that to me is the critical message. I agree. The resiliency of Native people, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, we all too often focus on some of the negative things, mm -hmm. but there are so many amazing things right. going on in our communities. I think you have to know your history, but then you have to really focus on that that um, rebuilding from the, the positive side. You know, relearning our languages, reclaiming our Indigenous foods, um, our our traditions and our ceremonies and and that's what that's what rebuilds our strength and our resilience, as you said. And being able to do that all in a new and modern way, right? Yeah. The adaptability yeah. that that our people have to yes. Um, yes. move us forward. Yes. Yes. It is it's inspiring, our youth especially inspire yeah. me. Um, so I'm going to switch directions a little bit. Um, your latest book is called Seed The Seed Keeper. Uh, it was just released. Um, in it, well, last year, and it won the 2022 Minnesota Book Award in Fiction. Um, congratulations Thank on you. that. That's a wonderful accomplishment. Can you share a little bit about this book in particular? Well, this, the book is, it, it is just, um, it was such a, a work of love for the, the work I've been doing the past 20 years in working with organizations and farmers and seeds and, and then, and then as a writer, I took what I've been learning for 20 years and as a gardener too. And I, and I created a story about four Dakota women who are really struggling over several generations to maintain their, their values and their traditional life ways. And then, um, and then to also show through the main character, Rosalie Ironwing, whose life has been hugely impacted by assimilation, that as she reclaims a relationship with seeds, which to me is really a metaphor for that very indigenous 
way of believing that we are related to everything, all, all living beings in the world, that that is the way that re, uh, rebuilding that relationship then is what brings her home to her family and her community and then to the seeds themselves. So it's, um, it certainly puts the framework, um, across generations for what's, what's happened. Um, to Dakota people going back to the 1862 Dakota War, but in, it's intended to really show that pathway is always the same. We return to our values, we return to our traditions, and and it was to share that that experience I've had of we also do it by returning to our foods. So you as a, a seed keeper, right? I mm-hmm. think seed keeping is something that's always been around, especially in Native communities, right? Mm-hmm. You give, give them as gifts and mm-hmm. uh, it's a way to, to keep things going. And seeds, you know, we know have traveled across the continent mm-hmm. um, in different trades to, to spread foods around. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, seed keeping and especially maybe how it's changed today and, and why it's so important to Native communities and youth and the ability to to learn from so many things uh, as a seed keeper. So the that that phrase came from I was introduced to it by an elder, um, Terry Lynn Brandt, who is one of the most amazing seed keepers I've met through food sovereignty work. And, it, you know, because a, a more conventional phrase would be seed saving. You know, and but it it there's a very different implication. Seed saving, you're putting it away. You know, you're saving it like you would in a bank, or the way that conventional seed programs um, save seeds for some indefinite time, or the way they create these vaults that are just storing seeds away. Or sometimes, which really is hard to see, is finding seeds in museums where they're not being they're being treated as just an artifact and not a living being. And so seed keeping means you are, you have, you are holding responsibility for these seeds at this point in time with, but with an intentionality around that relationship that you know seeds have to be grown in order to be viable and that you're keeping them for some period of time, maybe for the next season, maybe for a next generation. Um, but the intention is always to maintain that relationship that that reciprocity that creates a relationship with seeds as essential to our survival just as we return that gratitude um back to them by taking care of them so seed seed keeping is um to me a really beautiful uh, uh tradition that has taught so much to our families and was so important to our way of life, but it's also a beautiful uh, metaphor, too, in the way that, that we take care of our children, we take care of our families. If you're looking to read more books by Native American authors, I encourage you to check out Diane Wilson's work. Her website is dianewilsonwords.com. Another great resource here in the Twin Cities is Birchbark Books in Minneapolis, owned by Native author Louise Erdrich, The store carries a ton of books about Native accomplishments, culture, and history. You can find them at birchbarkbooks.com. Now back to our episode. 
Well, as part of your career, um, you've been really involved in in Native food issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were the executive director of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance um, and also the executive director of Dream of Wild Health. Can you talk a little bit about these organizations and and why uh, you're passionate about that work? They they both are doing um, just incredible work of restoring indigenous foods to communities and and helping to rebuild the traditional food ways in a modern um community so that as we say things we can't all go out hunting for example and we can't all go out foraging necessarily but we can understand the the essential importance of these practices and begin to rebuild as communities our independence and our our sovereignty in restoring indigenous foods to um to to communities in a way that rebuilds our our financial health our physical health our emotional health our spiritual health and i find i found food work to be right at the heart of really reclaiming um cultural sovereignty and that the so I learned so much in both both organizations about seed keeping, about reciprocity, about um, some of the harder history around um, the ways in which communities were moved from traditional foodways onto reservations, and then the impact of commodity foods. And again, it's understanding that context that allows us to see the work that we need to do to rebuild that. And I've seen um, the youth programs, in particular at Dream of Wild Health, I've seen the transformational impact they have on youth to be working with elders and um, to be on the land, to be working with seeds and to be learning how to cook. And to uh, we had a saying that when you eat uh, meals that are grown with loving care and then cooked with loving care, and then you share these meals of indigenous foods, you are re-indigenizing from the inside out. So that was, um, that was in both organizations, the experience of seeing firsthand how our food work is fundamental to rebuilding the health of our communities. And it's joyful work because it, you know, we all love a good meal. And it bring, so it builds community. We're sharing foods. We're, we're, um, rebuilding a practice that dates back thousands of years. So to me, food work is, is intrinsic to all of that cultural rebuilding process along with our languages and our ceremonies. And, you know, when we're growing those indigenous foods, the way that our ancestors practiced, it brings back songs. It brings back prayers, it brings back that sense of reverence for for this land and for our plants and for our water that to me is also fundamental to what it means to be um, an indigenous person. I love that concept of, yeah, the garden to the cooking to the sharing a meal, um, re-indigenizing yes. the inside out. Ernie Whiteman. Oh, that's, just, uh-huh. that's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> yes. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Um, so we, we talk a little bit about food sovereignty in there, and I think food sovereignty is a term um, that has really 
gained momentum mm-hmm. in the past decade or so. You know, SMSC um, participated or, or had a, a campaign, Seeds of Native Health, mm-hmm. that um, was really to raise awareness about the uh, health disparities across Indian country. And one of mm-hmm. the main reasons for those health disparities is, as you said, commodities and poor diets. Mm-hmm. And so that push to return to traditional foods and healthier natural foods um, is kind of all wrapped up in in food sovereignty. And can you talk a little bit about that term specifically and, mm-hmm. and some of the work around it and, and why it's important for mm-hmm. our communities? So I, my personal interpretation of food sovereignty is healthy children. You know, if we have healthy children, then everything is working as it should be. But I think a broader understanding of it would be a community has the ability to provide uh, healthy and culturally appropriate and affordable food for its members. So it's returning those traditional foods back as foods for community. And often a part of this that's really important is the education piece, because what has been displaced over generations is that knowledge of how important our foods were, how to grow and harvest them and cook them, because it is a different palate in some ways. So the traditional corns, for example, don't have that same kind of sweetness that the sweet corn today does, which is more like a donut. You know, very, it's a very, it's just, it's a carb. And your traditional corn was much higher in protein and antioxidants. And so you, there's a shift that has to be made in, in reintroducing these foods to people's palates. Um, but one of the things we did at Dream of Wild Health was actually test some of the, the indigenous seeds that we had and compare them to conventional foods. And those old seeds were so much higher in nutrition. So it really showed us how much has been traded off in terms of when you start hybridizing and genetically modifying seeds, especially if it's with the intention of shifting a growing season or increasing a yield without paying attention to what that seed was intended to do, which was to provide this nutritional value to um, to families, then <clears throat> what we see is a, a food system now that's really geared towards profit. So that's your food as commodity, whereas your seed as a relative, you're going to take care of that relative. You're going to maintain what made that such an important food in the, in the beginning and maintain it today, which is, which is challenging in our food environment. But I feel like native communities in particular are situated to lead this work, to return to, um, food sovereignty as as one of the ways of really increasing our independence as communities. Yeah, and I, I know here in our community and many of the communities, we do have a focus on, um, we have our garden is called Wujupi, mm-hmm. uh, and we are, I love your garden. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It is a wonderful garden, but it, we operate, you know, some similar programs as Dream of Wild Health where we bring the children in and mm-hmm. They get to learn about the garden and the traditional foods, and we've made a effort to um, grow more traditional foods like choke cherries and wild plums, mm-hmm. and then to be able to harvest those and actually host classes around 
um, canning and preserving and recipes and being able to use and, and taste those things. So um, it is it is a wonderful process, and mm-hmm. I'm glad that our tribal communities are are focusing on that. Um, what do you What do you do in your garden? What are What are some of the things you do and some of your favorite recipes? So I um, one of the so I have a it's it's not real big, but I have a seed garden, and I like to grow the Dakota corn that um, actually was a gift from Teresa Peterson to Dream of Wild Health. And then I have seeds from Dream of Wild Health that I grow out. And it it's the same corn that I wrote about in The Seed Keeper. And it goes back to that that story that I heard about Dakota women saving the seeds um, in the hems of their skirts after the 1862 Dakota War. And so for me, growing out that corn is a way of of remembering the sacrifices they made to protect those seeds and how important it is for us, our generation, to to maintain um, and protect those seeds going forward. Even though we have access to all these other foods and, but those, you know, those Dakota women protected them so that we would have them today so that our generation and our children and our grandchildren would have those seeds today. So I grow that corn and um, traditional tobacco that was a gift from Ernie Whiteman, who was an elder at Dream of Wild Health. And um, so that's my my real joy is to grow out those old seeds. But then also, as as we were talking earlier, I love greens. So, you know, to to see our our traditional foods, but then to bring in the um, the foods that we also adopt as as part of a new diet, for like kale, for example, is a great. That's a great green. I've had kale over winter here in Minnesota, which is amazing. So you know, kale is a new is a new plant, but it's a great food. And um, and then I like growing fruit. You know the berries, the blue. I've got blueberries and raspberries, and um, you know it's so just whatever I can grow that just helps me teach my grandchildren too what what these foods are, why they're important. Those are great memories for our children. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna shift away uh, from food and food sovereignty a little bit and and kind of move into writing and books. Is there anything you're working on right now? So I'm I'm kind of in the I'm in the gestational gathering phase of I think what'll turn into a couple projects. Um, one is thinking about thinking about the ways that there's a, you know, when we're working with land and plants, I think there's an experience that we often have of, there's a lot of grief in that work as well, that because of so much is changing today with with climate change, we're losing so many species, we're seeing um, so many areas that have been disturbed that, you know, I think about the land that I live on that that was used for grazing and has now been overrun by even native plants that have become overestablished. And and so how do we 
how do we uh, how do we do this work of land restoration but how do we also tend our grief and i think there's a way in which indigenous people have a a particular understanding of grief both um as it relates to the land but also to our our personal lives that there isn't really a a collection of that so i'm interested in that topic i'll say that and then um uh, also another novel and i think it'll be a continuation of the seed keeper but focusing more on the the two young men because i think that that there are challenges that our young men are facing that are unique to them and the losses that they've experienced over um the the uh generations and so those are those are the things that are that are that I'm beginning to gather around and i should say too i have a children's picture book coming out in october with three other writers and it's called where i come from and the idea is to share stories from four different very different um communities that go that go back in time but then also to the, your your personal story so again it's a way of bringing a book back to children that shows that that gives them some some different um stories to relate to. I love that. It's great. I can't wait to mm-hmm. pick it up and share it with my kids. Um I I want to ask a little bit about what kind of advice um do you have for uh, non-native people who want to learn more about Dakota culture and find some reputable books and and find authors and resources that mm-hmm that give a correct narrative. Boy, for Dakota history and culture in particular, um, I think it's really important to know the history. And then both through nonfiction and fiction, I think you can pick up a lot both ways. And, you know, maybe there's um, uh, looking at what books do Native organizations carry? Um, what books are being recommended on native websites. So those are, um, oh, the, and I would say the Birchbark Books mm, yes. is a fantastic bookstore owned by Louise Erdrich, uh, incredible collection of native books and native authors. And that's, that's one of the places that you could, <clears throat> you can either visit or you can go to their website and, um, I think, you know, they also have very knowledgeable staff. So those are the some of the resources that I would check. Yeah, Birch Birch Books is wonderful, and especially for, like, educators. They'll yeah. help put together um, resources for different grade yeah. levels and, and stuff like that, too. So. And the Historical Society has also printed some pretty, you know, some really good books on Native history and culture. So I would also check their collection. Then I guess on the other side, um, there are a lot of Native people out there that have wonderful stories to tell, right? Yeah. Um, how, you know, what kind of advice do you have for them and how to get started uh, as a writer and how do they share their stories? Yeah. And I, I have to say, I'm so glad you asked this because that for me is one of the most important things we can be doing right now is encouraging Native writers to tell Native stories. And you don't have to be 
you know, people put this thing in their mind like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Well, you learn to do it by sitting down with a notebook and a pen. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways to develop craft. But the most important thing is to, to, to be telling those stories. So when I think back to that phrase I mentioned of Crystal Echohawk, the change the story, change the future, one of the ways we do that is by making sure that Native stories are being told by Native authors. So I had mentioned to you earlier about a program run out of um, All My Relations Gallery um, that actually we just concluded a two-year pilot program for supporting uh, Native writers, emerging Native writers who want to publish a book. And the focus was on developing a manuscript and then learning um, what what is involved in publishing a book. So getting to know editors, understanding um, some of the grants you can apply for, and then what the whole process looks like. So that um, that just concluded in May, and they're in the process of selecting the next mentor for a new cohort that will be starting in September. So right now, if you go to the All My Relations website, um, which is part of NACTI, then I believe they have a posting up about applying for that program. So that's that to me would be one of the ways you can do it. There's also a um, a Native book club that I think it's Alicia Waka. And that is also a great way to get acquainted with Native authors and also to be, um, it, it's also a way in which I think they're talking about doing a, a, a Native writers, just a Native writers group. So those are some of the resources that I know of that are happening right now. Fantastic. So when you wrote your first pieces and we're looking to get them published, what was maybe one of the largest barriers you faced oh. uh, in, in getting, <laughs> getting to that end stage where you finally had a published piece of work? Believing that I could do it. You know, I didn't. And that, that was part of my motivation in wanting to uh, work with all my relations and setting up that Native Writers Group was I didn't have the resources, I didn't have the encouragement, I just had kind of a, a a stubborn determination that I wanted to tell this story. I thought it was important, I thought I had a responsibility to tell it, to not be silenced by what had silenced earlier generations in my family. But But what happens is that, you know, that we need to encourage Native writers now, we need to support them and help them understand how important it is to tell those stories and how much healing there is in sharing your story. And then, and then to make sure that we have those stories available for children so that they're not waiting until they're an adult to learn who they are and what their, their history is. They're learning it as an, as part of growing up in, in Minnesota and in this country. Do you think it's much easier uh, today than it was, say, even 10 years ago for Native authors to um, be able to publish their works? I think it's I think it's definitely changing because there's a lot more Native books out there right now and more coming out all the time. It's really exciting. So this is a terrific time to actually work on a, a, a book and get it out there because there's a lot of interest from publishers and readers to understand more about 
Native culture and, and stories and, and history. That's great. I always look forward to anything new by our Indigenous relatives uh, that I can grab off the bookshelf. So, Diane, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your stories and your work with us. Uh, it's really inspiring. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Rebecca. It's just been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.